Okay. Um, our next speaker doesn't need an introduction because he's already introduced himself. This is Dr. Jeff Lennox uh, from Emory University here in Atlanta, Georgia, the home of high traffic and angry drivers. Um, and so he's going to uh, talk to us about what happened to Croy and what this is is kind of a safety net talk where things that we aren't going to talk about elsewhere in the program, this is the opportunity to cover the things that are new from Croy that aren't going to be covered elsewhere in the meeting. All right, thank you, Mike. Uh, good morning again, everybody. Uh, why don't we go ahead and get started? Um, this is my financial disclosures. Uh, the learning objectives, which are in the syllabus. And then uh, we're going to start out with a question. A uh, 66-year-old woman treated with diabetes, obesity, and hypertension, vaccinated two times for COVID. So you just heard about the vaccines, got the bivalent vaccine. She was presented with mild COVID and treating with nemaltrevir. Ten days post-treatment, she pretends with fatigue, sore throat, no fever. A PCR is positive. How should she be treated? And then I think the options will be here. Repeat the nemaltrevir, no treatment, give her metformin, and, or give her a combination of monoclonal antibodies to treat COVID. All right, we'll go ahead and go on. So the most popular answer was no COVID-specific treatment. Uh, I believe that is the correct answer since I created the question. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to show you some of the data, and hopefully this will reinforce for those who did choose to repeat the course of antiviral therapy why that's probably not an effective intervention. Um, second question. 41-year-old male with HIV, basically doing great on therapy, comes down with acute hepatitis C infection with a high viral load of greater than 6 million, no other chronic active hepatitis. His ALT and ALST are mildly elevated. He has a very mild hyperbilirubinemia, but he does have a few symptoms. His genotype is 1A. And then the, uh, the questions are, you know, would you closely observe would you treat for 12 weeks? Would you give a shorter treatment regimen because he's got acute HCV and it should respond easier to treatment? Or do you have no idea and you would ask somebody? are answering very briskly to this one, so hopefully they won't be uh, chickening out and phoning a friend. Let's Great. So about a third said treat as you would for chronic HCV, 28% say closely observe, and then you can see the rest. 
Um, we're going to address this, but the closely observe, I will say, came about in the era of interferon-based therapies, and interferon-based therapies have tons of side effects. HIV-infected people with acute hepatitis C are not likely to resolve the infection spontaneously, and so that is why that is an incorrect answer. And then we'll go through the other options. So the CROI topics, uh, I was at CROI, most of the other speakers obviously attended, and we split it up so that we would cover all of the major HIV or in case of COVID, long COVID would be covered by our other speakers. And you heard about um, COVID vaccines, et cetera, from Paul Gepfert, uh, and Joe's going to talk about new ART, et cetera. And so what else is left? Well, what I call the leftovers is left. So, my leftovers are my favorite part of Thanksgiving, so that's why I get this one. So, I'm going to talk today about SARS, not long COVID, primarily treatment and rebound, tuberculosis, hepatitis, and a little bit on, on MPOX, okay, the new name for that previous virus. There's a lot of information presented at CROI. There was nearly 700 abstracts accepted. There were 347 late-breaking abstracts, 16 hours of oral symposia, and 40 hours of oral abstracts and poster presentations. So you could literally have spent 56 hours at CROI in direct uh, observation of speakers, either presenting data or presenting up-to-dates. So we'll go to the first subject, CROI, I mean COVID. So one interesting study that was presented about COVID is what effect did the COVID pandemic have on HIV discovery, you know, discovering HIV-infected individuals who were undiagnosed. And this was a very nice um, presentation given where some advanced uh, models were used to look at how many cases were diagnosed in the years just before COVID, what are the population changes, what are STI rates, and they basically showed, as you can see in the bar graph and then the pie graph, the estimates of the number of cases that weren't diagnosed because of the COVID pandemic. And then more specifically, for those of us here in the Southeast, they gave a numerical range of how many additional cases were undiagnosed. And as you can see, for the South, there was approximately 1,700 cases that were estimated to have had no diagnosis or a delayed diagnosis for the three years of the pandemic. And so this has an obvious implication in that, that the pandemic is probably going to lead to a bump in HIV cases here in the United States. That because we didn't intervene earlier on, more transmission continued to occur. And so this will probably be one of the effects of the COVID pandemic that we'll be living with. Now, the viral rebound. This is obviously a, a very interesting area. Former president experienced viral rebound and was retreated with his highly effective chloroquine treatment. Um, so for COVID, the Active 2 5401 trial was a really nice study that had a placebo arm. And they collected daily swabs from patients, and they did that for 14 days, and then weekly after that, 
There was a symptom diary that patients kept. They collected all this data as part of the study. And what they were able to see, and I'm sorry, they graded the symptoms as mild, moderate, or severe. Okay, zero, one, two, or three. And what they saw is that after five days, about a quarter of the patients had a symptomatic rebound after initially improving. Um, viral rebound after day five with a high viral load, because people continue to excrete COVID PCR for a long time, but people that had a viral load that was greater than five logs, about 12.5% uh, were found to have a viral load greater than five logs. And about 3% were found to have both a symptom rebound and a rebounding viral load in the placebo arm. There was no intervention here. Nobody was treated. So untreated HIV, a quarter of the people have symptoms after you know, initially improving. So these were people who initially improved. And about half of those, half the, as many, had a virologic rebound, but have both together a symptomatic rebound and a virologic rebound was about 3%. So um, from this, the investigators concluded that you would need a huge study to be able to determine if you were rebounding in excess of this amount after having received an antiviral intervention was the conclusion of the study. Now, nilmaltravir was, uh, the FDA had a meeting in mid-March to determine whether it should be given full FDA approval. And what they did is they did an analysis of all the data that was available from the registrational trials, if you want to call them those, um, that, where the nomaltravir was given. And what they were able to show, and I know this bar graph is a little bit um, difficult to read, but it's comparing the intervention arm versus the placebo arms of the nomaltravir trials. And what they showed that you can see is there's essentially no difference in any rebound measure, whether it was symptoms or uh, other measures of rebound. And so the FDA concluded that there is no association with nilmaltravir and an increased risk of rebound based on the data that was available to them. Now, what about new treatments? Luckily, if COVID continues to wane, we won't need any of the things I'm about to go over with you, but it's unpredictable. So, Incetrolvir is a protease inhibitor approved in Japan. Um, it's once daily dosing. A phase three trial was undertaken for mild to moderately ill people who predominantly had Omicron variants. So, that's one of the um, good things about this study is that it's a relatively recent study, so we're not talking about Delta variants. It was a placebo-controlled trial for five days, and the endpoint was symptom resolution, and it's a dose-finding study to see what the effective dose is, two different doses. The data showed that if you look at the um, symptom resolution in hours, um, compared to placebo, there was about 30 hours quicker symptom resolution in the 125 milligram group and not quite as fast in the 250 milligram group. So statistically, because only you know, 350 people were in each arm, the 125 milligram was actually statistically significant. The other one was not statistically significant. Now, they also looked at PCR positivity versus negativity at end of treatment. 
And you can see that there was a clear difference between both interventional arms and placebo, but this was not a primary endpoint for the Um, but it appears that the lower dose of this newer protease inhibitor in a primarily Omicron-infected population does decrease symptoms one day compared to placebo. Appears to have an antiviral effect. The question is, is this worth it, right? Is the juice worth the squeeze to shorten the duration by one day? And since people routinely treat people with influenza who are at high risk with anti-influenza medications to shorten it by half a day to one day. Uh, I might conclude that people might use this drug in people with risk factors if there's a derivative to come if it were available. Now pegylated interferon lambda this is an interferon that's been around for a while. It's basically different from the other interferon that we use primarily to treat This interferon, the receptors are mostly located in the liver, lung, and gut, so it should be targeted to the lungs, is the theory behind which this So the TOGETHER trial was a somewhat complicated trial. It's one of my favorite trials because it was one of the biggest trials done to look at the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine ivermectin, fluvoxamine, and other drugs that failed to show any efficacy. But in this arm of the trial, they were using pegylated interferon as a single dose of interferon injected. The primary endpoint was decrease in hospitalization or a prolonged stay in the emergency department. And the theory behind that was that if the hospital's full of COVID patients, you're going to spend a long time in the emergency department. So if you were there for more than six hours, then this was a supposed to be uh, treated as a hospitalization. Um, what you can see is that in the people that were randomized in this complex trial to placebo arms versus people that got the interferon lambda, if you look at the viral load decline, there was a faster decline in the uh, interferon lambda viral load PCR negativity at day seven, there was a difference in PCR negativity. But um, the hospitalization or hospitalization only um, did show a likelihood of superiority for interferon lambda. But again, um, the greatest benefit was seen in people who were unvaccinated and people were allowed to be treated up to seven days after the onset of symptoms. But those who were treated within three days after the onset of symptoms had the most benefit. So if you were to use this medication, which is you know, potentially uh, plausible, it would be the most beneficial to give it to unvaccinated people who haven't previously had COVID and who um, basically Now, uh, in the previous talk, we mentioned monoclonal antibodies. Obviously, monoclonal antibody combinations have been used for COVID. For a while, we were using a lot of monoclonal antibodies for prophylaxis. This one was looking at this combination of monoclonal antibodies, which target two different spike antigens. It was approved in China in 2021 to treat mild COVID. The active two study that I mentioned earlier 
that was done primarily in people pre-Omicron. At ID week, this intervention using this dual monoclonal antibody was shown to reduce hospitalization, and that was presented last. This study looked at the viral load response to the dual monoclonal And you can see in the dual monoclonal antibody versus placebo that there was a decline in nasal RNA by greater than a log in the monoclonal antibody arm that was greater than what was observed in the placebo. Also, about 3% of the people after treatment developed a virus that was resistant to the monoclonal antibody. So they weren't symptomatic, but they were shedding a virus that was resistant. So this is actually a good thing. If that didn't happen, you would say the monoclonal antibodies weren't effective if you saw no resistance in a big trial. So I think that this study showed that this combination was effective. Unfortunately, it probably won't be effective for Omicron. So it's one of those ironic things, but if the virus were to mutate back to a variant that was more closely related to the pre-Omicron variants, then this could be something that we could then use uh, based on this study. Now, what, another thing that I thought was a great idea was since most of the disease is in the lung that's causing people to get hospitalized, how about if you inhaled interferons so that they could go right to the area where you're trying to fight the infection. So again, in the active two trial, there was a nebulized interferon beta one alpha versus placebo. And it was given to people who were less than five days since the onset of symptoms. And about a, one in five of these people had been vaccinated. So a lot of them were unvaccinated, relatively early diagnosis of COVID. And then they measured the nasal swabs, as I mentioned before, nasal, daily nasal swabs. What you can see in the first line is that by day three, there was no difference. At day seven, there was no difference. And then retrospectively, people said, well, would you really expect a difference in the nose if you're delivering the interferon directly to the lungs? Really, we should have been doing BALs or sputum PCRs potentially. Symptom resolution, it was um, a little bit longer in, a, in the inter interferon arm, but hospitalization, there was only one patient hospitalized in the interferon arm versus seven in the placebo arm. So the conclusion from this study, I think, is that it basically didn't provide data to say this is of no benefit or data to show this was a benefit. So I think it was a really mixed result. Um, maybe we want to give intranasal and nebulized interferon beta if COVID were to come roaring. Now, what about metformin? Um, there are people who, based on the data available, believe that metformin should be prescribed routinely for people with COVID who are at high risk of hospitalization. This study, the COVID-out study that was presented, is a beautiful study where it's primarily patients at home who are getting the intervention through the mail and who are re responding back with mail-in samples and stuff. So it's really a, a very, very, very innovative trial design. Six arms comparing metformin in combination with other drugs that might have been at that point thought to be active versus placebo. Um, what they showed is that 
looking at the primary endpoint of hospitalization, hypoxia, ED visit, or death, that metformin was not effective. It did not prevent that primary endpoint. If you just look at hospitalization or death, it did not prevent hospitalization or death. But if you looked at PCR positivity, there was a difference favoring metformin in PCR positivity. Now, um, if you look at this, you know, you can clearly see there's a difference. So it appears that metformin did have some antiviral activity, although it didn't prevent the most serious complications of COVID. Now, the other thing that was presented that was interesting is that they looked at patients' symptoms that they reported. They were reporting in them until they became negative. And people that got metformin had a shorter duration of symptoms out months after the diagnosis of COVID. Now, it's always useful to look at the y-axis on these graphs. You can see that the cumulative incidence is about 10% um, incidence. So there was a difference that favored the metformin. Uh, whether it would truly prevent log and COVID, though, I think is still debate. And then just briefly, I wanted to highlight this study from North Carolina, real-world data, as people like to call it. And what they showed is that the vaccines did in the community prevent hospitalization and people that got nomaltravir had the greatest benefit of preventing severe disease. So again, another reason to treat people that are high risk. So thank you, those of us, our colleagues who are from North Carolina. Now what about tuberculosis? It's always exciting when there's a TB study designed to change the standard of treatment and one of these was presented for drug-resistant tuberculosis. It's the Simplice-to-be study, looking at bedaquiline, protominid, moxie, and PZA for six months for people with drug-resistant TB. Also, for people with drug-sensitive TB, um, a four-week course of this same regimen, and then comparing it to the standard six-week course of you know, four followed by two that we use for TB. Um, two-thirds of the patients had drug-sensitive TB, one-third drug-resistant. And what was noticed is that there was a greater withdrawal from the newer drug combination, mostly for mildly elevated liver-associated enzymes, but they were written into the protocol as one of the stopping criterias if you reached an LAE level of a certain amount. So what about efficacy? Well, if you look at the bar graph, what you can see is the percent of, po of patients who were culture positive. Um, and the red line on the top is our standard TB treatment in treatment sensitive patients. The orange line is the drug resistant TB patients. And then the bluish line is the drug sensitive TB that were treated for a four month course of treatment. And what you can see is that the treatment was effective for both drug-resistant and drug-sensitive TB. So for drug-resistant TB, this is good, you know, good data. Now, unfortunately, because of the dropouts which are shown in the, in the um, table, you would conclude that for drug-sensitive TB, this four-month treatment course was not favorable because of excess toxicity compared to the standard so I do think it's, in, it's nice to have another trial showing an effective combination for drug-resistant TB. 
what about preventing TB by giving INH? You know, in a lot of areas of the world, we're trying to encourage them to use medications to prevent TB. One of the things that's really hard is when people are actively abusing alcohol to get them to also take INH. And so this was a very clever study where people were put on a dual intervention to get rewarded for coming into the clinic with a negative urine alcohol test and a positive urine test for INH. Now you didn't, it wasn't point of care. You got rewarded and then at the next visit, if your last results were unfavorable, you got fewer gift cards. And for each visit, you got more and more gift cards. So this was basically paying people to be sober when they came to clinic and to have INH in their urine. Unfortunately, the INH and the urine part didn't work out all that well, but people did come with a negative urine for alcohol while they were on the intervention. So I think it was an interesting study that, again, that showed, you know, positive reinforcement of interventions to lead to sobriety, I think, can be beneficial, um, although it didn't have the intended in outcome for prevention. Hepatitis studies. This is that question about recent hepatitis C. This is a combination of a protease inhibitor and an NS5 inhibitor that was approved six years ago and is used for treatment of hepatitis C. So this is not really an experimental treatment. It's a well-accepted treatment for chronic hepatitis C. So they treated 23 patients who had acute hepatitis C. And what you can see is that they had a 78% um, week 12 sustained virologic response. And that is not what we typically see when you give a longer course of treatment than four weeks. <clears throat> However, they showed that if the baseline viral load was less than 6.5 million, that they did have 15 out of 15 that had a sustained virologic response at 12 weeks. And so my conclusion was that there have been other studies that have indicated that uh, people with lower viral loads um, who get treated for six weeks might do similarly to people who get treated for 12 weeks. So I think with more studies done in this area, we might come to a point where we say eight is equivalent to 12 in the setting of acute HCV. Um, because these treatments are experienced for healthcare systems, that could make a difference. For the individual, it's not a huge difference. So right now, the recommendation is treat just as you would for chronic hepatitis C. There's not been a large several hundred you know, patient trial to show that shorter course treatments are proven to be equivalent. Now, one study that I thought was incredibly interesting, this was not the purpose of the study. The purpose of the study was to look at switching from Bictegravir-based regimen to a Duravirine-Islatravir-based regimen whether that Duravirine Islatravir regimen could main, maintain your viral suppression. Uh, to me, the most interesting part of the study is that they allowed people into the study to stop their nucleosides if they had an isolated core antibody positivity for hepatitis B, which is something we see a lot of in the clinic. You know, people that have isolated core antibody positivity they got two hepatitis B DNAs prior to stopping the nucleoside. And two patients relapsed within 12 weeks 
with a positive hepatitis B DNA and then were stopped on the treatment and were put back on their nucleoside analogs. Now, we don't know how many people were enrolled in the study that had the isolated positivity, but in another study that was published four years ago, um, 60 people who had isolated HBV antibody, uh, core antibody positive and a negative DNA, six out of 60 reactivated their hepatitis B. So the bottom line, we used to think that maybe the isolated core antibody positivity was you know, something that you could not pay attention to. But if you're planning on stopping nucleosides, you really should monitor the hepatitis B DNA levels and restart them before the patient gets a symptomatic relapse with their hepatitis B. Because some of these symptomatic relapses can be very severe. How do you get your patients with chronic active hepatitis B to get their annual ultrasounds or their every three-year MRIs or whatever else you want to follow? You know, obviously the guidelines are based on ultrasound. Well, in 2016, this group developed a PAGE score in HIV-negative patients. And what they were able to show, based on this scoring table that I've put for you here, which is a simplified version that I've created from their scoring table, if you have chronic hep B and you're a male and you're over the age of 40, you are at higher risk if you're HIV-negative with hep B. So the question was, does this table work in people who also are living with HIV? So what they did is they looked at a large combined cohort study from multiple areas of the world of people who were on TDF or TAF-containing regimen, and they applied this same PAGE score to those individuals, and then they had data on the actual hepatitis, I mean, excuse me, hepatocellular carcinoma rates for five years after that. And what they showed, and what you can clearly see, is the higher this PAGE score, the much more likely you were to develop hepatocellular carcinoma. Now, the cutoff point of 10 that was seen in HIV-negative patients was a differentiator, but clearly the higher that PAGE score is, the more important it is that you get your patients to follow up with hepatocellular carcinoma screening uh, moving forward. And just a quick slide or two on MPOX. People like myself who got vaccinated in the military for smallpox, the question is, did that vaccine take? Does it work? And so this was a study looking at people who received Drivax, which is the older generation uh, smallpox vaccine, or in another study where they were using, using ACAM2000, which is a more modern smallpox vaccine, Looking in these patients, on average about a dozen years after they last got the smallpox vaccine, they were able to look at this population and see among those who developed monkeypox versus didn't, excuse me, mpox, and what they were able to show is that roughly 60% efficacy of the smallpox vaccine in preventing clinical disease about a decade after you got the smallpox. Now, because the population isn't uniformly vaccinated for smallpox anymore, the question is, what about people like myself who were vaccinated 30 years ago or childhood vaccine, which stopped about 60 years ago in the United States, whether those people would still be?
Okay, and then also another speaker is gonna touch on this clinical course. So I just put this up as a teaser uh, for what you're gonna find out about the clinical course of MPOX in H. So I'll go ahead and close and we'll open it up for questions. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Um, kind of a potpourri, which is what we expected, and that was good. Um, what are, when you put the TB data together from what and et cetera, what is your current approach to managing somebody who has a uh, exposure and or not even exposure, they just have a positive PPD or T-spot? Uh, what what do you recommend at this point uh, treating tuber tuberculosis from uh, uh, going from latent to active? Um, so the question I'm thinking is, in the context of a conversion, is that correct? What would you recommend? I mean, obviously, yeah. currently the recommendation is give either INH yeah. or there's a shorter course that you can drugs, obviously the downside being the potential. Now, interestingly, what about if it's an exposure to drug-resistant And there's a study going on in the United States, I mean, excuse me, worldwide, the Phoenix study that's looking at household contacts of drug-resistant and then giving, um, what is that? I'm blocking, it's one of the newer drugs, instead of INH, um, as prophylaxis, and that, those Phoenix trial results will be available in a few years. It's not fully enrolled yet, but you know clearly INH you would expect it not to work if these. But we don't clearly know that. Okay, there's a question here about how you calculate a page score. I'm not that. Oh, what that table. That, that you'll get in your slides. It's very simple. You know, the, the things in blue are the points. So women were at much lower risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma. So they got zero, and males got a score of six. And then, you know, age or a lower platelet count, like less than 100,000, greater than 100,000, there were point values. And as I pointed out, if you were a male and you've been infected with hepatitis B, and you're over 40, you automatically get a 10. If you're a woman more recently infected, maybe it's not all that important to be really emphasizing the pattern. You've pointed out very nicely about the isolated core antibody positivity. Uh, what about folks on Because it wouldn't be an indication for just treating HBV. Right, for a core antibody, there would not. I think that depending on your level of paranoia, you know, you would probably want to do DNA PCR at about 12 to 16 weeks. So now, what would you do with the results, right? 
do reinstitute an operant half. We don't have a clinical trial, right? You might right. just follow the patient very and the treatment algorithms for hepatitis B are depends on what their ALT level is, B DNA is, et cetera. And I think there's a movement towards simplifying that, but we're just and there's also a lot of research going on right now to try and come up, you know, with what is a cure for hepatitis B. Can you really eliminate the closed circular forms from the liver, or are they going to be there forever? You know, this is a very interesting area of research. I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of data. So I'm pretty confident there's no um, study for this, but the question is, patient comes in with acute hepatitis C documented, and you want to treat, but the insurance company says, no way. What, what do you do in that setting besides scream, yell, and... I mean, obviously, you refer them to the ASLLD, whatever, you know, the liver disease guidelines. That's correct. Which say, treat, okay, that's the standard, you know, and then, you know, appeal, you know, if necessary, call and be bothersome. I think, that, I think that's right, and that guidance changed. Uh, yep. When it was first released, it said, wait and see if they clear on their own, which is about 15% of people with acute HCV. It said, well, just wait and see what happens. But that changed mostly because the effectiveness of the direct-acting agents is nearly 100% in that setting. And that's a situation where a short course might be a little And, yeah, we talked, I talked about that during my Currently, it's 12 weeks, but it's possible that if somebody is not tolerating it, you've gotten eight or 10 weeks of hepatitis. It may not be worth making them. So there's one question that came in before uh, the meeting today. Uh, it's about mask wearing for, for COVID. And uh, at this meeting, we're wearing masks because we want everybody to do it. But you know, just flying in uh, on the airplane, I counted there were uh, two other people besides myself wearing a mask out of however many were on the flight, which anecdotally I think is one of the riskiest places. It, it shouldn't be because of the air currents, which are great, but people fly home with active COVID if they're a bit on vacation or someplace and they get COVID, they go, oh, I got to get home. So they get on the plane no matter what. Hopefully they're wearing a mask, but looking at my end, they're probably not. So you got to do something to protect yourself. But just in general, what do you think is driving the mask controversy of why people are saying masks don't work and they're a waste of time and all that? Just your general thought. You know, I think that masks clearly work for some viral infections. I mean, look at the influenza rates during COVID. You know, people were socially distancing, isolating in some cases. And we saw almost no influenza. And for the earlier variants of COVID that weren't as infectious as Omicron, I would presume from that data that masking was effective, was probably having activity against COVID at that point. The question now is, um, is it effective against the much more transmissible variants? My own personal opinion is that 
if you're wearing an N95 mask and wearing it properly and wearing it all the time whenever you're around other human beings, that would have some activity. I, I'm fairly confident in my opinion, which is not. But if you're wearing a surgical mask in the era of Omicron and you take it off to eat dinner with people, I think it's sort of ridiculous. My own personal opinion. What's your opinion? Well, so I, I, was, I think what sort of muddied the waters, I think they work, clearly, because it's an aerosolized uh, disease. It's not droplet, which we initially thought were surfaces that may be more risky. But I think the Cochrane report that got put out for reasons that are unclear to me um, indicated that there's no evidence uh, one way or the other, and it got widely misinterpreted, of which the Cochrane people just said, tap the brakes, wait a minute, we didn't exactly mean that, which I responded, well, why did you release anything at all? It wasn't helpful. Um, but, but generally speaking, it's a hard thing to show, but I think there are a number of studies, especially in general terms, I think that one of the more interesting ones is the school systems in Arizona some of which went to masking for the kids, some of us didn't, and there was up to 60% almost a reduction in incident COVID cases in the school systems that had universal masking there. So I think there's a lot of evidence, plus it just makes common sense, and I think a lot of the benefit of wearing a mask isn't so much to the person who's uninfected being around someone, but it's a person who's infected who may not know it at that moment in time, wearing a mask, reducing the amount of virus that's being spewed into the environment. And that's why universal masking works better than overall, than, than just your own, because that it, it doesn't quite have the nearly the oomph of blocking that initial thing. And I think one thing to remember about Cochrane, it's a great organization and the people that use those methods, they hold things to the highest standards for showing efficacy. But sometimes the data is not there yet. Like when for hepatitis C with 100% effective drugs, their initial report was that there's no evidence to support using those medications yet. Over interferon because there was no direct head-to-head -head comparison. And the reason there wasn't is because IRBs de deemed it um, unethical <laughs> to give poison someone, my prerogative term, uh, with interferon to get a 30% success rate when the preliminary data showed 95 plus percent, why are you going to torture people? But yet they dug in and said no evidence. So right. th they're very rigid in that way. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's very